0: Welcome back to the MarTech
1: Podcast. Today, we're going to continue our discussion about the trend that's taking place where companies are directly paying consumers for their data. Joining us is Neil Sweeney, who's the CEO at Kili, which is a privacy-compliant consumer application built on top of blockchain that allows consumers to take back control of their identity from those who have been using it without their knowledge or consent. Yesterday, Neil and I talked about why companies are paying their consumers for data, and today we're going to talk about some of the best practices for blending multiple sources of data offline and online in an ethical fashion. Okay, here's the rest of my conversation with Neil Sweeney, CEO at Kili. Neil, welcome back to the MarTech Podcast. Thanks for having me. We covered a lot of ground yesterday talking about the interesting changes that are taking place both in terms of the acquisition of user data and also some of the privacy concerns that are coming out about giving brands your data. My takeaway from the conversation is that you feel like regulation is coming, which is going to force the hand of brands to be more explicit with how they are collecting data, because for the most part, consumers right now understand that there is some sort of value exchange. They're giving data for the use of search engines and social networks and various apps, but they're not necessarily sure the extent that that's happening. Talk to me from a marketer's perspective. What are some of the ways that you suggest marketers acquire data to make sure that it's in an ethical practice? And what's the right usage of that data when you're blending multiple sources from online and offline together?
2: So I think what we're finding with most marketers today is that they're on this search for unique first-party data. And I think if you look back over the last half a dozen years as to some of the most progressive brands that were created in the ecosystem, most of them are direct-to-consumer. And what those brands are doing is they have a direct line of communication to the consumer, they have a direct line of sight as to what the consumer wants, and they have a data stream as to how they're changing their offering. So whether that's HelloFresh, Glossier, Uber, Airbnb, Lyft, etc., all these direct-to-consumer brands are really running data businesses in the back end. So I think the takeaway from that is If you're a brand, you have to have a direct line of communication towards data from the consumer. And if you don't, you're trading at a disadvantage. And I think if you look at the marketing space today, you have traditional CPG brands who are struggling against some of these upstarts. Why? Well, because they don't have the lightest line of the consumer that the direct-to-consumer brand has. So... As a consequence of that, you're seeing CPG brands and others buy direct-to-consumer brands or try to incubate direct-to-consumer brands inside of their ecosystems. They're not doing that because they have this desire to create a direct-to-consumer brand. They're doing it as self-preservation. They have to do it because they're getting chipped away on the edges from all these other companies. But ultimately, underneath it is is that these are companies that are doing really, really well because they're decisioning on top of high-fidelity, first-party data in a direct one-to-one relationship with consumers. So That's what you need to be doing as a brand, regardless of your industry moving forward.
1: That's interesting because my thought for the reason why the direct-to-consumer brands are happening is they don't have the overhead that some of the non-direct to consumers, right? Some of the CPG brands have, right? They don't have to give their products to a warehouse to get delivered, right? They don't have to have any sort of middleman markup. And so the reason why the Casper mattresses of the world are successful is they're more profitable because they don't have That middle layer of infrastructure and that distribution has become easier, less about their access to data to the customer. And you're saying, you know, brands like the food delivery and Uber and Lyft, all these on demand brands are essentially data driven businesses. I'm not sure that I'm following how Uber is a data business. They are a marketplace, essentially, for transportation. How are you calling Uber and Lyft and HelloFresh and these other brands that have risen data businesses?
2: Well, I mean, ultimately, in the case of Uber, without the access to location information in the back of an application, their business doesn't exist, period. Like, you're calling a cab. At the core of their application, it is a corralling of technology data inside of a mobile application, which is a super-powered, location-aware device in your pocket. And they're harnessing that and then putting a brand on the front end of it to solve a pre-existing problem. So, I mean, I think simplistically as it relates to Lyft and Uber is, if they don't have location data, those businesses don't exist. As it relates to some of the food delivery businesses, it's kind of the same idea. Data comes in a lot of different forms and fashions. So... Harry's Razors or Dollar Shave Club is slightly different than obviously Uber, but at the core what are they all relying on? They're relying on data. They're just different types of data to run their businesses.
1: I'm not sure if I would necessarily call that a data business. I think that is, you know, a company that is reliant on data to function, right? Uber obviously needs location data to be able to organize a pickup, but they are not necessarily monetizing that data, right? They are not actively selling the data in the same way that I think I would call Facebook more of a data business, right? It is a part of the logistics, not part of the actual end product that's purchased.
2: I mean, semantics, I would argue that they are selling the data. They're just selling it to you as a consumer. You're paying for that data for the convenience of being picked up at your house and being delivered to 28th and Broadway at 20% less than you can get in a New York cab. I think that's the value exchange. So there's a transaction for data somewhere in all of those individual businesses. But you're right, the businesses are different. So you have your stereotypical business, which is I'm Facebook, I'm amalgamating data in the same way that other companies like AOL and Yahoo, in a much lesser fashion did before that. And you have the emerging direct-to-consumer brands, like Glossier is doing it differently than Uber, Casper is doing it differently than Dollar Shave Club. But ultimately, what's powering each of these individual businesses is that they're using data from which to decision from. And I think Coming back to your original point, when you look at some of the traditional retailers or traditional CPG brands, you're right. They have all the overhead, they have the product. And even if they're selling it into a retail location, do they even have that data or is that being maintained by Walmart who's managing that data? So they're kind of caught. They have this reliance on distribution and the need for data, but they don't really control either of those. That's a problem in the future world.
1: I hear you. Everybody is fundamentally a data business in the internet age. Correct. You need to have access to data to be able to manage your logistics, create your products. I'm not going to say that data is not important. I was more differentiating between what I would call a data business being like, I am selling data as opposed to I need it to be able to sell a product and or service semantics aside let's talk about how you can acquire data in an ethical fashion because i think that's really the biggest concern i think that's where people that are listening to this podcast are going to get the most value and i can talk to you about some of the data practices that you know we use here at the martech podcast we talk about other brands as examples but i think that there is a question about what data i can accept what i need to ask for explicit consent for What does explicit consent actually mean? Like when somebody listens to the MarTech podcast, my host gets an IP address. I go to a vendor to take that IP address and tie it to a mobile app ID so I can retarget and advertise on behalf of my sponsors to people that listen to the MarTech podcast. I say it publicly on the show. I'm not hiding it, but nobody is going through terms and conditions of the MarTech podcast to say, sure, you can use pod sites to collect the data that is being driven through your host for the use of retargeting. Like, At what point here does the access to data become acceptable and the usage of that data become acceptable? Where do you have to actually go and get explicit consent from your consumers?
2: You know, just using that as an example, I think the idea of an individual going to a site or going to a platform, there's terms and conditions associated with all those individual platforms. Those terms and conditions are historically been very vague, which is you sign off to giving me all your data and let me do whatever the hell I want with it. That's changing. It's not going to be any different of when you go to an individual site, the terms and conditions are going to be different. The difference there is really more on how you as a brand can actually use it. So the letter of the law suggests that what you should be doing is one, you need to be getting explicit consent. And yes, individuals will say, oh, you know, the California consumer privacy is opt out versus opt in. We'll see how that kind of works out. But ultimately, the best practice is if the most onerous privacy policy is GDPR is that you must have an opt-in versus an opt-out. So first and foremost, you need to be making sure that people are opting in. And then when they do opt-in, they're opting in for the service that they're planning on using. So what you can't do is you can't opt somebody in for one thing and then arb them out for 50 other products out the back back door. As long as you're explicit around it, that's fine. So for most brands, I think you can still collect data in a compliant way. The challenge is is that there's a lot of data that's being collected in a non-compliant way. That data is going to go away. So the data that is being collected in a compliant way is going to become more valuable, more expensive, and that's going to have an issue. That's going to have an impact on various different marketing budgets. But I would say from a brand perspective is that if you're a brand or you're a platform, it's sort of your responsibility first and foremost to make sure that you're actually getting that consent and that you're actually getting that individual data. There are companies in the market, we're obviously one of them, where hey, if you want to buy a deterministic persona of an individual that contains, as you mentioned before, an IP address, a mobile ID, an email, validated age and gender, you can buy that in a compliant way. You can buy that from us, from a Kili perspective. The difference there is that the consumer has full knowledge that it's being bought by Procter & Gamble. They're being compensated for it. And you can use that data in the same way that you would any other data. So I think that the combination of the accumulation of data from the brands and making sure they're getting consent. And then I do feel that there's going to be increasingly more companies that We'll focus on acquiring data in a compliant way. But a lot of the legacy companies, in my opinion, are going to go away just because a lot of that data is going to go away.
1: That's an interesting take is that the people that are going to suffer through this sort of privacy and data revolution are going to be the legacy brands, right? Maybe the CPG companies, as we put it earlier, who have long-standing relationships and archives of data, which may or may not have been collected in a fashion where they were getting explicit consent. As opposed to brands that are new brands, which are more reliant on data accumulation, basically new data. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi, who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, the marketing mixed modeling platform that makes measuring ROI fast, easy, and cost effective. Why do you think that the older brands are going to be the ones that struggle, not the companies that have been gobbling up as much data as they can, but are relatively new companies?
2: Yeah, I just don't think that the legacy brands have a direct communication. So if you're Campbell's Soup, how are you getting data from me? Because you're not getting it from Walmart. You're not getting it from Kroger. And I'm not buying Campbell's Soup directly from your website. So what is your way to actually create a one-to-one relationship with me where you actually have data specifically on that individual? I think that's really challenging. Because again, as we talked about before, they don't have a direct one-to-one relationship with the consumer and they don't own the distribution. So if you own the distribution, you can get the purchase-based data on behalf of Campbell's Soup and some of these other guys. If you own the direct line of communication, you obviously have that data stream. If you don't own either, you've got a really big problem going forward. And I think some of the CPG brands are probably in the worst spot but you could argue that retailers have a tough time too. Increasingly, sales are moving online. But as they move online, what are they getting? They're getting increasingly more data from which to decision from. Now, they've got all the overhead of the offline stores. So they've got to transition away from offline to online. Are they going to be able to make that? I don't know. But at least they actually have that communication with the consumer. And at least they actually have that data. There's tons of brands and tons of categories that have neither.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. The first thing that you said talking about how Campbell's and I'm paraphrasing here is essentially screwed because they don't have the distribution channel, right? They don't have the relationship directly with the consumer. So how are you going to buy soup? And my first thought is they're going to sell more on Amazon. They're going to take the soup away from the grocery stores or wherever it's going to be. And they're going to put it on a platform where they can go direct to consumer or maybe they launch their own direct to consumer soup brand.
2: That's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to do a direct-to-consumer brand so that they can own the communication with the consumer and they can own the data stream. And you're right. They can actually work with Amazon, but Amazon's not going to give them the data. And then in addition to that, what Amazon's going to do is going to analyze the data probably way better than Campbell's can. And then ultimately... they're going to
1: make their own soup.
2: They're going to make their own soup and then they're going to cut them out. So. If your future as a retailer is depending upon Amazon to sell your product, good luck with that. You're going to get eaten if that's the case. Like you have to try, you have to try to do it on your own. Otherwise, you're delaying the inevitable, but it's going to happen.
1: The fact that you just said that Campbell's soup is potentially at risk to get eaten makes me feel like we found a new marketing joke here.
2: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. For sure. But there's a long list of those individual companies that are struggling because they need the distribution of someone like Amazon, but they know they're wading into some dangerous territory by going there. So
1: the Hershey's people are going to get gobbled up, too.
2: Yeah, there you go. It's, It's the same cliche over and over. I can keep going. There you go.
1: You know, the original topic for this podcast was about appropriately merging your offline and your online data. And I think that the thought there is the brands that you feel are going to be the most successful, the people with access to the first party data. And a lot of that is going to be collected through digital marketing practices. What about some of the offline channels uh, where data is being collected? And what are some of the ways where you collect sort of these appropriately correct and use these historically useful sources of data?
2: I think that there's a whole industry of offline data. There's tons of companies, you know, ranging from Nielsen Catalina to Ibotta to loyalty cards to Cardlytics to IRI. I mean, these are all companies that, you know, have specialized in the accumulation of that offline data. Most of it's purchase-based data. They usually have some sort of supplier that's providing them with that data, whether it's a banking company, a retailer, it's all point of sale information. So I think that information is great. And I think what you're finding is that what a lot of marketers will do is they'll take the point of sale information that they're getting from X provider, they'll bring it into their ecosystem, and then they'll start to marry it with the online data to build a more robust graph or a more robust persona of an individual. So I think you'll have that online data that you're collecting and putting in your CRM and then combining it with the offline data to create a better matching table. So Those are typically what we've been seeing over the last number of years is that most of the brands are kind of doing some of that already. And either they're doing it themselves or they're actually getting help with it from companies that will sit in the middle and help them actually analyze and put those various different data sets together.
1: As we're talking about data sources and the appropriate way to be able to collect them, there's the offline data, all the point of sale data. There's your direct to consumer data. I've interviewed a host of location-based data, analytics firms. I'm sure that there are other places where data is being collected, aggregated, and sold. What are some of the other data sources that you can think of, and which one of them are at risk as the privacy regulations potentially change?
2: Well, all of them are at risk. So again, I mean, if you're accumulating purchase-based information from a bank client based on credit card information from a consumer, What consumer knows that their credit card information is being sold to a brand? And people will say it's not personal and that we de-identify it, but ultimately, that's at risk. So do we think that people are going to be able to sell purchase-based data and credit card information unbeknownst to the consumer in the future? I don't think so. I think location is a big one, clearly. Obviously, there's tons of focus on that, specifically around how location is collected I'm less worried about that, to be honest, because I actually think that that's kind of solving itself. And the reason I say that is that you're finding the operating systems are actually changing that. So iOS 13 prevents you from basically tracking persistent location in the background. So whereas in the past, you used to be able to track location always on, now you actually have to go into the settings and actually turn it on. You'll never be prompted with the always allow location tracking. So slowly but surely I think what we're finding is that the operating systems are kind of taking away some of that ability to be fast and loose. Similarly, I think when you look at a lot of the companies that have been doing location, they've been doing SDKs inside of applications. You know, ultimately again, if you're putting an SDK inside of an application for the sole purpose of just collecting information, and that could be location information, it can be for sniffing for Wi-Fi, it can be for looking for other information from other applications, you're going to get denied in the store. And then ultimately, you're putting that partner's business at risk. So if you're a gas application, and you have an SDK inside of it, that's collecting information, you as that gas company should probably be prepared for that application to be ripped out of the store if you actually infringe on the rules and regulations put forward by Apple or iOS. Companies that have... A bigger business, if you're a big weather company, etc., they're just not going to do it anymore. They're just going to say it's not worth it to us. It's not worth it for us to actually sell this type of data to this third party going forward because it's not worth the PR and it's not worth the exposure and it's not worth the fine. We're just going to stick with our core business, which is selling weather information or actually selling gas information or selling dating information or whatever that application's core functionality is. So I do think as it relates to that, People get a lot up in arms about it, but I ultimately think that most of that is going to get solved primarily by the hardware and the operating systems in the space.
1: I agree with you that I think we're about six months away, maybe a year from it being a brand new world for marketers in terms of the acquisition and usage of data. And if we've seen anything from GDPR, my takeaway from GDPR is that was great. It generated a lot of emails, but it didn't really have a major impact on at least US-based marketers.
2: So this one always comes up all the time, and it's actually not true. First of all, like if you look at any of the big data companies that are operating in Europe, they all saw like a 30 to 40% reduction in data in those markets. So you saw a corresponding increase in the cost of the remaining data in those markets. So anybody, you go to any company around the world and say, yeah, you're going to see a 30 to 40% reduction in supply. That's material. Secondly, we saw 40, 50 companies from the US basically leave Europe because they didn't want to get compliant. Where are most of those US companies from? California what's the state that's implementing the California Consumer Privacy Act in three months?
1: Denver. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Denver's not even a state. I don't know why that came to mind. First. Yeah.
2: Like this is the thing that is mind-blowing. There's literally a blueprint in front of everybody to say, well, when people say to me, people have been talking about privacy for a long time in the United States, it's never gonna happen. I'm like, okay, so if you're talking about a global platform, so the global platforms are all benchmarking against GDPR. And those global platforms actually operate in the United States. If you're a global brand, you're benchmarking against GDPR, and that's going to roll into the United States. The only people that it hasn't affected are kind of the standalone domestic brands in the United States. But ultimately, not only are they going to be hit in the face with it, but then they're also going to have the complexity of dealing with all the various different state laws. So I mean, I always some people say, oh, GDPR was like a Y2K moment. I'm like, that is so fundamentally wrong it's not even close. No one's looking at the statistics when they do that. I'm like, uh, what statistic are you looking at when you say it's a Y2K moment? It didn't affect you in Portland or you in Florida, because it's not a US law. But trust me, it's going to impact you immensely, increasingly more so going forward.
1: Interesting. I stand corrected. I
2: have an opinion on that one, clearly.
1: (laughs) Hey, look, that's the purpose of the podcast is to bring experts on. And like I sit here in California and work primarily with marketers that are based in California that are running U.S.-based brands who from GDPR was like, what a pain in the ass. I had to send an email to all of my European customers, but nobody was really saying, oh man, this is burying my business. We are not operating data businesses, right? We are not selling data. And so for those businesses, yeah, I see your point that there was a dramatic impact. And when that type of regulation comes here into the U.S., there will be more of an impact for domestic brands.
2: For sure, for sure. I mean, you have thousands of companies just operating in California. Many of them are actually public. So here you have this kind of onerous privacy law coming, hitting kind of US shores with a lot of public companies trading data without consent. Like what could possibly go wrong with that situation? I'm like, oh, nothing. Yeah, it's going, to be t- it's going to be status quo going forward.
1: It's like, no chance. Marketers, the privacy reckoning yeah. is coming. It's coming. Take it from Neil. You need to be prepared. You need to be on offense and start marketing how you're managing your customer's data, how you're securing it, how you're using it, how you're collecting it. And that's going to help you be prepared in advance of doomsday coming six to 12 months from now.
2: The one tip, if there's any CMO that listens to this podcast, I've been saying this literally for a year, is that there is an absolute blue ocean opportunity for a brand here. An absolute blue ocean opportunity, whether you're Starbucks, Coca-Cola, Unilever, you name it. The stage is set. You can choose to basically be the brand that leads on this. And what I've said to people forever is that I keep thinking that there's going to be some young progressive CMO that is going to stand on the stage at the IAB leadership forum or one of these individual conferences. And they're going to stand up there and say, you know what? We're Coca-Cola. We have millennials at the core of our product. And we're making a decision to include our consumers in data. And that is, we believe in this concept of ethical data, where we're not using illegal data. We're not using arbitrage data. We're putting the consumer front and center. A brand has the opportunity to do that. And a brand can run the table with that. Apple's kind of trying to do that a little bit. But if you're Procter & Gamble or you're Campbell's or you're Unilever and you don't actually have a direct line of communication to these individuals, you have an opportunity to separate yourself from everybody else in your pack by basically leaning into privacy. If you do that, you will be viewed as a very progressive, forward-thinking brand and will have tons of goodwill for your brand going forward. So my hope is that over the next six to eight months that I'll see that actually happen, that somebody will stand on the stage and actually take that. Because ultimately, I think when we come back a year and a half from now, If everybody believes in paper straws versus plastic straws, everybody in marketing will believe in this concept of ethical data. And ethical data is the inclusion of the consumer in your data decision.
1: The reckoning is coming. Get ready for ethical data. And that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks to Neil Sweeney, CEO of Kili, for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Neil, you can click on the link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can send him a tweet. His handle is Neil Sweeney, CEO, CEO. Or you can visit his company's website, which is Killy.io, K-I-L-L-I.io. There's one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while you were listening to this podcast, head over to martechpod.com. We have summaries of all of our episodes, contact information for our guests. You could sign up for our newsletter. It's a once a week email blast to get our content into your inbox. You can also send us your topic suggestions or your marketing questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. My handle is Ben J. Schaap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a daily stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, we publish episodes every day during the work week. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning. All right, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy.